Welcome to the Practicing Drummer Podcast. My name is Craig, and in this episode, I'm bringing you a conversation I had with Billy Drummond in April of 2023. Billy has played with Horace Silver, Joe Henderson, Bobby Hutcherson, J.J. Johnson, Sonny Rollins, and countless others. He's also a great band leader with several wonderful records under his own name. His most recent album as a leader was a downbeat best album of 2022. On a personal note, Billy is hands down one of my favorite drummers, so this was a huge thrill for me. Definitely a bucket list item, so I hope you'll forgive me for fanning out quite a lot during the interview. After we got done recording, he sent me a video showing some of the albums he's been listening to recently, so I've compiled that into a list, which I'll add to the show notes. With that, let's get right into the interview with Billy Drummond. Okay, Billy Drummond, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me to be a part of your series here. Yeah, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. You know I'm a big fan. I've met you in New York a couple of times. Yeah, and... I really appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. It was really a dream come true. I think over the last couple of years, I was able to get out to see you three times. Twice with Freedom of Ideas, I think the CD release yeah. for Vol Sinistra. Yeah. And then another gig a year or so later. And then I think in between that, I saw you with David Hazeltine at Mesro, and I got to sit in the hot seat right next to your hi-hat stand, which was <laughs> quite a thrill. <laughs> okay, hopefully I wasn't playing too loud. No, no, it was great. You're definitely one of my favorite players, and I think you know that. Cause I bug you all the time with questions. <laughs> oh, you're not stuff, bugging so. me, man. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. So I, d I discovered you kind of late. I was reading, gosh, I think it was 2018. I was reading the, the monk biography by Robin Kelly. I don't know. I don't know that book. Oh man. It's a great one. It's a great one. And I'll put a link in the show notes too, for you and for all the listeners. It's a wonderful biography. But that got me, of course, digging into Monk's music. And through that, and it was right around that time that Frank Kimbra put out that project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, okay, what better way to hear all Monk's music at once, every tune? Right. So that's when I discovered you. And I'm going to, I want to ask you about that project a little bit later on, but I want to hit some other stuff first. But man, that project knocked me out. So we will get to that. That's okay. Great. That's high on my list. But, you know, it's hard to describe everything that I love about your playing because it just all hits me. You know, your ride cymbal beat just knocks me out. And but you've got such facility and beautiful phrasing and your touch is just one of my favorite things about your playing. Thank you. The feeling I get from your playing is you seem to have sort of a bottom up approach. You really do a lot of accenting with the bass drum, the floor tom. Is that something that was consciously developed or can you point to any kind of influence players that might have gotten you there? I've never really thought about that. I've always admired people that that I perceive of them playing from the bottom up. Um, someone like um, Al Foster or, uh, let me see, Idris Muhammad and all the uh, drummers back, you know, that grew out of the 40s out of the well out of the swing era that grew into what was probably the bebop era all those guys even though you know it's been said that kenny clark wanted to free up the bass drum from playing a steady 4-4 mm -hmm. beat 
and use use the bass drum for accents. But um, I know that when I saw um, you know people like Max Roach and Philly Joe Jones, uh, uh, Art Blakey. Even Roy Haynes, you know, they, they're kind of, they're patting their foot, you know, on the bass drum, they're patting their foot, you know, all four beats to the bar. Uh, not not all the time, but a lot of the time. And uh, and even someone like Tony Williams, uh, who I saw a lot of times as well, sometimes I would make a point to sit as close to him as possible, even sit right almost kind of behind him to the rear of the hi-hat uh, mm-hmm. just so that I could watch his feet. And he certainly feathered the bass drum all the time. Um, so I always admired that. I don't I don't necessarily do that myself. Uh, sometimes I do, depending on the tempo. I can't do it real fast. <laughs> I try to practice doing it fast, but, I, but it's hard. It's really hard to do it real fast. But somebody like Tony or um, Max Roach or... Um, uh, Philly Joe Jones, those guys can really they can they can feather the bass drum, you know, at any tempo. And and uh, the the uh, swing drummers, the drummers prior to the Papa Joe Jones and uh, Buddy Rich and uh, those kinds of people that came from that period. That's they you you couldn't play if you didn't do that. That was just part of the way you played. Uh, so anyway, to answer your question, um, I I haven't thought consciously about that particular aspect of playing from the bottom up except for that i try to do it when i feel like i need to do it um and i can't do it at really fast tempos so i don't know i i I hope that kind of answers your question um yeah yeah it does for sure and you know i'm also thinking about a lot of the you know even when you're soloing and you're playing snare drum you're dropping in heavy accents you know when you're accenting the snare drum you'll hit the bass drum at the same time Mm -hmm quite often yeah maybe maybe i do i don't know i I haven't really thought about it like that but 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 maybe i maybe i do i don't know i hadn't really thought about it like that so you know and just as we're talking about that the other thing i want to hit on too before i forget is that you know you also have an amazing approach on the cymbals where sometimes i've heard you you know play a whole chorus just on the cymbals Mm -hmm. or you've kind of got the you know for i don't know how else to describe it but you've kind of got the billy drummond sweep that you do across the symbols, <laughs> you know anything that I do is 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 most likely stolen from something I saw someone else do or something like that, or at least i I stole the idea I'm not able technically to do what other people do, so I do it my own way, so to call it my name to put my name on it was probably not a not fair because it's it's all stolen property but um i i i like the symbols i really i really love the symbols um and you always play great sounding symbols too yeah that's something i that i i became enamored with a friend of mine brought a recording over to my house when i was living when i was still living with my parents i was a teenager i was probably about 14 or 15 years old maybe and uh, he brought over um, this record by Miles Davis called Four and More. That record really kind of changed my life because I had been playing the drums prior to that for probably, I don't know, nine or ten years. Um, and and had been, you know, listening to jazz and, and played a lot of other kinds of music and had learned how to read music and was in the school bands and all that. The whole, the whole you know, the whole bit with, with developing as a drummer, as a young person. But I hadn't really, the, 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 the light bulb hadn't gone off about cymbals until I heard that record. 
And uh, of course, that record had Tony Williams on it. And on the record, he was uh, 17 years old or something like that. And uh, not much older than you were at that time. Exactly. And that's another thing that flabbergasted me was the fact that here's this guy. Now, this happened probably in 1973 or four, somewhere around in that particular time period. But the record had had been done in 1964. So, um, but just come to the realization that this this drummer on this record at the time of the recording was just uh, two or three years older than myself. And uh, that was a, a, an awakening, an epiphany moment as well. But back to the cymbal, hearing that cymbal sound and the way he played it, the way he played the drums in general, but the way he played the cymbal in particular was something that I, I hadn't heard before. At least I hadn't paid attention to it like that. He he really, mm-hmm. and it was so clear on that album too. Yeah, he really brought it to light for me, and that um, that led me on a quest for uh, the drum geek part of me. That led uh, that led to, uh, the led me on the quest for trying to find a symbol that sounded like that, and then trying to play with that kind of articulation and clarity, and in doing that it put me on a on a path to to discovering other drummers that also had a way of playing the cymbal in a special way with clarity and with a sound and with a with a sound that was had a had a had a identification on it that it was unmistakable you know from drummer a to drummer b to drummer c to drummer d so on and so forth. And I was fascinated with that. I was fascinated with that because such a inanimate type object struck with a wooden stick by a human being could get such a different sound um, that was personal. And the feel and the way that they played it, the way that they phrased on the symbol was something that I, I became enamored with and obsessed with. And so I I began to get as many recordings as I could of various drummers and focusing on their sound. And like I said, the uh, immature part of me was, uh, it, it was it was a harmless thing, but the immature part of me was um, trying to find the symbol like what I thought I heard on the recording. Sure. So, so that was a whole big thing. And uh, Did that lead you into playing around with sticks too? I know you're play with the SD11s, right? I mean now. I've... Right, right, right. I've been I've been playing those sticks for golly probably close to 30 years now. But they give a pretty unique sound on the cymbal too. They do. They do have a good sound on the cymbal because of mm-hmm. the shape of the bead and uh the weight of the stick and the fact that they're maple. So I I kind of, you know, I kind of ended up with that stick and that stick ended ended up being the perfect stick for the sound that I wanted to make that I heard in my head based on the amalgamation of all of the people that I was trying to imitate or emulate. And uh, that was several different drummers over the years. And um, so what what happens is, you know, you have this sound in your head that you're trying to make. And so whatever you need to do to make it, you do it, whether it's uh, something nuanced by the way you touch the the instrument or then the way that you phrase on the cymbal, playing that rhythm that uh, that we all play when we play a swing rhythm on the cymbal. 
you know, dotted a 16th or uh, eighth node triplet, you know, broken up or whatever, however, yeah. however you want to see it in a notated way. But um, that sound and uh, that feel uh, is something that I kind of dissected from different people that I that spoke to me, that resonated with me. And there was a lot of different people. <laughs> so did you spend a lot of time with records and the ride symbol only playing along with records and trying to copy different feels? And Well, yeah, I did. In the beginning, I did. I certainly did. Uh, and I still, you know... Well, for me, I feel like if I don't have that, if I, my symbol, ride symbol beat, my symbols, I got to have that. And, you know, if I go for a period of time where I haven't practiced or haven't been playing for a while or something, if I don't have that, I'm very, very upset. <laughs> you know, the chops and all that stuff, I don't have that anyway. But I'm, I'm I, you know, but I feel like 99% of the, what I do is centered around keeping time on the symbol with the music that I'm that I'm involved with um, primarily. So I always try to keep that together as best I can. Sometimes it slips, and and then I pay pay the pay a dear dear price for it. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I've never heard you slip. No, 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 no. Believe me, sometimes it's not what what I want it to be. So yeah, so it's a it's yeah, it's a thing and and when I was uh when I was young, I certainly would spend a lot of time just with the cymbal, uh take it take it taking taking it away from the the drum set and just trying to get it to sound the way I'm hearing it in my head based on yeah. uh based on the the, the things that I've heard you know, and you know, and then you know, uh, also watching um, people play that uh, that whose symbol sound that I that that resonate with me, and uh, and just watching how they do it. And so, did you have an opportunity to see a lot of guys, a lot of your heroes, um, or did your parents ever take you up to New York when you were younger? I know you you moved there later, but yeah, no, I well. I saw some drummers, not a lot, because where I lived, it wasn't like a hotbed of jazz activity in terms of uh, national acts or international acts mm -hmm. coming to that particular area. But um, my father was a drum was a drummer actually prior to my being born, and was a jazz enthusiast and had a really good um, collection of records and stuff. And uh, so he had a lot of records that had. Most of the drummers that I still listen to today, you know, Max, Max Roach and Buddy Rich and Philly Joe, because he had a lot of Miles records, uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, you know, people like that, you know. So so I, I, I was tuned into them just because of the fact that he was playing those records around the house all the time. So I was tuned into that. But in terms of uh, seeing uh, live drummers, he did take me to see people whenever they came, for the most part. The first drummer that I remember seeing, I think I was about seven or eight years old, I saw the, the Ramsey Lewis Trio. Oh, yeah. And that drummer was a guy named Maurice White. And uh, Maurice White ended up being the lead singer for uh, a, a band that I grew up loving in the 70s called Earth, Wind and Fire. But, oh, but, yeah, uh, right, right. But anyway, I saw him, and uh, that was a, a mind-blowing experience because he was playing on a... That's the first time I had seen a, 
a grown man playing on a drum set just a little bit bigger than the one that I had because he had an 18-inch mm. bass drum and all that. <laughs> but I was seven or eight years old, so I didn't know about all of that. But uh, that was uh, a very mind-blowing experience. And at, at that time, I was a huge Buddy Rich fan. Uh, Buddy Rich was my my idol. At that time, we're talking about the mid-60s and Mm-hmm. So Buddy Rich was uh, was a huge personality. He was a, not only was he a great, great drummer, but he was a personality that was on television shows, talk shows, variety shows, and things like that. So, so I got a chance to see him a lot on television because my parents would let mm-hmm. me, you know, stay up late if he was on, like you know, after you know the news went off and stuff. This is back in the time when there's no cable; it's just yeah, yeah, three channels. <laughs> But I was in, you know, elementary school, you know, and stuff like that. So um, anyway, so he was my favorite. He was my favorite drummer. I was obsessed with him. And at the same time, my father was playing Max Roach and Art Blakey and Philly Joe Jones with Miles and Jimmy Smith records and all that stuff. And uh, so it was a good, healthy uh, uh, influx of uh, of influences to uh, and then later on, um, I think I saw, let me think, I, I know I remember seeing Roy Brooks, the drummer from Detroit. Oh, yeah. I saw yeah. him when I was about, probably around the same time that I uh, heard f- Four and More. And then uh, I had, I, I, this was around that time. So at that time, you know, early 70s, uh, fusion music was brand new on, on the scene. Mm-hmm. And uh and me and my friends were all into that. And so we saw uh, Billy Cobham, Lenny White, well, uh, maybe Alphonse Muson, you know, people like that. And uh, near the end of the 70s, I saw um, Elvin. I saw Max Roach. I saw Tony Williams. I saw Jack DeJanette. So, yeah, so all of this stuff, you know, o- over a period of time, uh, as I was developing as a as a as a as a drummer, I was also developing as a as a listener. Oh, yeah. You were exposed to so much great stuff. Yeah. And it was happening in real time at that mm, particular yes. time. So right, it was right. all new and it was all exciting and fresh. And not only that, but the other side, the other part of mu- my musical life was happening, too. I was very much involved in playing in uh, R&B and soul bands and stuff like that. And that was a, a wonderful time for that music. Like I said, Earth, Wind & Fire and Cool and the Gang and Ohio Players and Parliament Funkadelic and all that, all that stuff. I was playing that kind of music a lot, too. While the jazz thing was happening and all the jazz stuff that was happening that were on, you know, like, uh, CTI and Milestone and Strata East and ECM and all this stuff. Plus the fusion stuff, plus the old blue note stuff, and uh, you know it was just it was a great time. It was a really great time yeah. because new things were happening, old things weren't so old. That's right. That's right. Hendrix, you know things. All it was very, very healthy, and uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the bombardment that it seems to be now with so much available to to young people on their phone with, you know. Oh, yeah. It's so difficult. You don't even know where to start. By the time you even think that you focused on something for a couple of weeks, you're on a different tangent and you don't really have that mm-hmm. time to dig in right. and absorb and really complete what you were trying to focus on. Right, right. Because these were records that were coming out 
you know, slowly, right. slowly down the pipeline. And you didn't know what you were going to get when you got it. You just got it because, okay, it's, uh, it's McCoy Tyner, you know, uh, Samalayuka. Sama okay. Who's on that? Oh man. Jabali, Billy Hart. Let me get that. You know, and the next one's focal point. Who's on that? Oh man. Eric Gravat. Let me get that. You know, <laughs> you know, so on and mm-hmm. so forth like that. Who's that? You know, let me get that, you know? So, and then you start to, you know, compile a little thing. I've got, I've got four records with Billy Higgins on them. Wow. I like him. Whatever else I can find that he's on. And that times 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you don't mind, I want to kind of step back. You know, you talked about starting playing when you were pretty young. And I think I remember hearing in an interview that you did recently on a different podcast that when you started playing that you kind of could just play it came pretty naturally to you and you didn't really have formal drum set lessons though you did study snare drum and reading Mm -hmm. in school and you took some snare drum lessons Mm -hmm. but i'm really curious about your drum set playing development throughout your your formative years you know i know you practice along with records with the ride symbol Mm -hmm. did you also play along with records with the set did you work out of books you know, of course, there weren't as many books out then. It wasn't like it is t- today. But what was your process without drum lessons? How did you decide where you wanted to focus or understand where you needed to focus? Were you methodical at all? Or I'm just kind of curious about what your mind and your practicing was like during that time. Well, first of all, all that music was happening, right? And I was in love with all of that music. So I was emulating, imitating what I heard and I, you know, and me and my friends that, you know, I had some drum buddies that were also just as enamored with it as I was. A couple of them are pretty prominent drummers now. Um, Roy Wooten, he's a, he's a drummer that he's a brother of Victor Wooten. He's probably the most, the most famous of the, of them, but they, Mm -hmm. they lived around the corner from me. So me and Roy, Roy's the one who brought over the, four and more record to my house and so we became and we were into the same stuff at the same time we were into buddy rich we were into max we were into billy cobham we were into lenny white we were into tony williams uh, elvin jones who you name it we were we were into it. and then there was another friend of mine whose name is howard curtis who was a little older than myself who was another person that turned me on to a lot of music that i so it was sort of kind of under the radar a little bit. He turned me on to like the, the, the you know, the recordings on Strata East and uh, mm-hmm. the Black Jazz label and ECM. Yeah, yeah. Clifford Jordan. And- yeah, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so, um, you know, I had that stimulation from my friends because we were all into it. Now, in terms of uh, what I did on the drum set, I, I didn't take drum set lessons. I did take snare drum lessons so i could so i could read and so i was in concert band and and all that stuff in school and i was also in the the stage band this is what they called it back then you know the jazz ensemble and so i could read fairly well because of my snare drum studies so i was studying out of those books you know the the, the books that are still you know popular and important today you know wilcoxon book the uh, john s pratt book the Podimsky, the Albright, uh, Cerrone. So you were getting into all that stuff, and you were kind of going through those books going more through or less those, methodically. Yeah, going through and... those snare drum books and those method books and all that stuff, you know. But uh, those were just for, you know, just for snare drum. You know, those weren't, uh, 
those didn't have anything to do with the drum set or jazz or anything like that. Uh, I was doing all that on my own, but I was playing a lot. I was playing, you know, I was playing in a lot of like pop, like soul bands. And, you know, you mm, know mm-hmm. at that time where I grew up, you know, there were a lot of those kinds of bands. And, you know, some of the bands were led by adults, but a lot of the people in the band were, were teen- teenagers, kids like myself. And so we were playing on, you know, army bases, and, uh, officers clubs and, uh, <laughs> and, and dances and block parties and talent shows. And that's good experience. Yeah. And probably paid a little too, right? So yeah, you had I mean, a little, yeah. I mean, you know, a little drum money coming in record. Yeah. Money. I was living at home with my, my parents. So it wasn't like I had a huge overhead or anything, but yeah. Yeah. Know, right. <laughs> yeah. Record money, you know, maybe, you know, maybe save up to buy a symbol or something or mm-hmm. a new, a new boom stand or something, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah, Right. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's how that, that's what was happening then. So did I read correctly in your bio that you started teaching lessons when you were 14? Right, yes. Well, the the, the drum teacher still around, his name is Win Winfrey. He was the he was my snare drum oh, teacher. Okay, yeah. And he had a he just had a, a lot of students. He had a you know, and he he got overwhelmed with the number of students that were interested in studying with him. And so he farmed out some of his beginner students to me. Because I was excelling in that, you know, and uh, so he farmed out some of those students to me, you know, and some of them were young people and some of them were actually adults and, you know, but they wanted to play the drums and but they didn't know how to hold the sticks. They didn't know how to do a roll. They didn't know how to know the rudiments. And I could I could at least do that. I could at least help them with that. So he would give those students that he couldn't fit into his schedule to me. And so that's that's how that started. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And that, that's good experience, too, especially as a young person. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah and then that was a little pocket change for me as well. <laughs> you know, I know you eventually moved to New York, and that story has been covered a lot mm-hmm. on Working Drummer Podcast, Todd Kuhlman, mm-hmm. Drummer's Resource, you know, mm-hmm. a lot, lot of places. So we won't cover all that again here, and I'll put links so listeners can go back and check those interviews out if they want to. Mm-hmm. But what, I, what I'm kind of curious, when you got to New York, you could play, right? I mean, Al Foster is letting you sit in. I think I heard that Art Blakey even could telepathically tell that you were a drummer <laughs> and asked asked, well, asked you to sit in, right? Or did he just talk to you? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, all of those things happen. True. Now, whether I could play or not, I mean, I I, I, I'm not. I, I didn't come with the expectations of actually working, at least not to the extent of of it being any kind of a big deal or you know major yeah. accomplishment or anything like that. I came basically with the idea that I would come and I would soak up as much as I could soak up and be around like-minded individuals and see all the people that I wanted to see and hear all the people that I wanted to hear and you know, maybe get a chance to, you know, meet some people my age that, you know, you know, that I could get together with, rub shoulders with, hobnob with, whatever. And so that was my intent. Mm -hmm. But then you did start playing pretty, pretty quickly. That's, that's correct. And that was, I still, you know, look back on that and go, how did that happen? Because it wasn't anything (laughs) that I solicited or planned. It was, it was just, you know, luck of the draw. I'm, very, 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 very fortunate 
that, you know, there's plenty of people that come to New York that are and were more talented and more ready than I certainly was that, mm. you know, they're knocking on doors and, you know, trying to get it happening. And it might, might not happen for three, four five years until something mm. looks up, you know? So that's why I mm -hmm. say I was very, very fortunate and that, you know, things just kind of happened. Now, I'm not saying that I was ready, but I guess I, I was promising enough that it didn't deter people from, from hiring me on down as time went on. You know, I guess I didn't fall flat on my face the first, first couple of times playing with, playing with people that were um, out of my league, so to speak. But, um, you know, I mean, I, I did the best I could, you know what I mean? And I, um, and I'm 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 thankful that that it worked out, you know. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd say it did. Mm -hmm. So when you started playing in New York, and you know, without even the intention of going there to really try to do it, and it just ended up happening. Do you remember epiphanies or realizations you had? Where like, oh man, I need to get such and such together. Well, yeah. I mean, I still feel like that. I mean, I I still you know am inspired by all the great musicians that that are here that i get a chance to be around here play and participate with and yeah i mean it's it it, it is very, very very stimulating to be uh, amongst that crowd you know and so i guess what i what i um first of all you know when you get hired by somebody you know you want to do the job well you, know? you don't want to you don't want to, you know, play badly. So that ups your game just by the fact that you're actually playing with whoever hired you, you know. And in some instances, it was um, it was just with people, you know, in my age group. And, and even within my age group at that time, there were people in my age group that were already very, very seasoned, you know, drummers and other musicians that were very, very seasoned. And, uh, I, I had great admiration for them, and I wanted to get on that level. I wanted to be on that that same level with those those people, you know, those guys. And and uh, so I would see them play and watch them play, and they were all very, 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 very receptive to me and nice, most of them. And yeah, most drummers are. Yeah, that way. and and uh, you know they and so they they you know they would turn me on to this or you know. Um, like for example, Kenny Washington, uh, great, 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 great drummer, and one oh, yes. a longtime friend of mine. I've known him basically since I came to town, and he he, he was already uh, like a like a veteran. He he was a veteran, you know. So he would invite me over to his house, and it wasn't like a drum drum lessons or anything. It was just listening to records and him telling me mm -hmm. stuff, talking about this, that, and the other, turning me on. You know, he's a he's got like a encyclopedic mine with uh with the, the history of jazz drums and uh and and music and stuff so people like that you know um and and all these guys were were uh one of my closest friends was a guy named tony Reedus, who uh was also my, my age group you know because all of us were around this, all of us about the same age you know give or take a year or two older than me or younger than me and stuff so he was, you know, he was he was already on the scene, you know, playing with Woody Shaw and uh, Bobby Hutcherson and, you know, all kinds of people. And then, you know, Carl Allen and Smitty Smith and Payne and uh, Lewis Nash, you know, all these guys are, you know, around the same 
age group as myself, but they had been in New York. Ralph Peterson, they had all been in New York, you know, for, you know, in Kenny's case, he's from New York. So he was here before all of them. But, you know, a lot of them had been here six, seven, eight, nine years prior to my arrival. They were playing with Freddie Hubbard and Woody Shaw and Betty Carter and McCoy Tyner and Milt Jackson and Bobby Hutchison and Joe Henderson. And the list goes on and on and on. And at that time, the other great thing was that those people that I just named were active and on the scene and hiring younger people. So you could get a chance to play with somebody who was way, 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 way better than you are. Way, way, well, way. Yeah, way. and the number of clubs back then. Yeah, the clubs were, were happening and stuff. And so, you know, word would get around. Oh, man, I, you know, I can't make it, but I know a guy, a friend of mine, you know, he could, you know, he could bake it. And so, you know, and then you get the call because your buddy can't do it because he's already playing with, you know, <laughs> he's on the road with somebody else. So, so that was what that was that that was a real big plus because of the time that it was that was that was happening, you know. So speaking of playing with elders, do you remember any of those times playing with folks that you maybe got some tough love on on the bandstand or after a gig that kind of switched things for you or made you rethink something about your approach? Most of the time people didn't say say too much to you it was more me (laughs) more myself Mm. realizing that man you know you weren't doing it you weren't cutting it you know you weren't cutting it so did that did those kind of realizations lead you to hit the shed or listen more or how did you deal with yeah i mean all of the above i mean Sometimes it was just an attitude adjustment, you know. Sometimes it would just mm. be like, you know, you've got to get out of yourself. I, I guess the way to say it would, you know, come in with no agenda. Let let the music dictate how to, how you should play, you know, because that agenda might not work that night or for that particular situation or what have you, you know. So that's that goes under the the uh, the guise of, of of being mature and being a professional. And so so you you mature, you grow the older you get, the more experiences that you have, especially playing with with people of a of a stature you know that that we're talking about. And a lot of the younger younger players and a lot of the students yours you know aren't getting that kind of experience anymore. Well, not like that and not with those kinds of people. Hopefully they'll be able to play with people that are older than them that have way more experience th- than they do and that they respect enough to approach the situation like I just said. I mean, I mean y- you don't want to disappoint Horace Silver. You don't want to disappoint Sonny Rollins. You don't want to disappoint Andrew Hill. You don't want to disappoint Joe Henderson. You know what I mean? You don't want to, you don't, I guess you worship them in a lot of ways. I mean, because prior to my coming to New York, I had no thoughts of ever playing with people like, like that, you know, but I had their records. I had the records and I, you know, I looked at those records like, like everybody does that's, that's into listening to jazz recordings and stuff so you're and so you're enamored with them just as artists and you love their music and so uh so when you get an opportunity to play with them you don't want to desecrate that you know yeah i know i I was thinking about you the other night i've i got the new sonny rollins biography Mm -hmm. 
the big one. I don't know. You know about this one, mm -hmm. the big. Oh, yeah. And that video that's on YouTube, the trading that you guys do <laughs> on that concert in 94. That's the most courses of trading I think I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, well, he kept going and I had to, I had to, I was hanging on by the seat of my pants, just trying to keep, <laughs> keep, keep going with him. <laughs> was that common night after night with yeah, him? Yeah, he, li he liked to, uh, he likes to, he's a, he's kind of a drummer on the saxophone. He's, you know, rhythmically, he's very, he's very unpredictable rhythmically and he doesn't play the way a lot of people play patterns and they're running with a little, 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 you know, which is, can be great too, right. you know? Yeah. Um, but he breaks it up and he plays off the beat on the beat. He plays asymmetrical. He plays against the time with the time behind the time ahead of the time, all kinds of rhythms. And he, likes to get into that sort of um uh dialogue with the drums because he's that's the way he's playing very rhythmic rhythmically and so he's feeding you and he's expecting you to give him back something to play off of and so so it it, it becomes quite a um beautiful conversation i mean it's very intimidating too because you know he's looking right at you and it's it, you know when you're realizing this is not your buddy you know that you play with all the time this is Sonny Rollins <laughs> so it so it uh, it can be a little intimidating but you know when you're in the, when you're in the throes of it you just have to uh you just have to you just have to get into it you just have to get with it and and no agenda open mind no agenda yeah and just you know and that and and then then, then it becomes very improvisatory because you know if you try to just do all the things that you practiced or something you know you'd run out you yeah. know after about a couple of choruses you run out <laughs> so, so you got to deep you have to dig deep within and and try to come up with something different and he from what he plays you gives you something different to think about and so you mm -hmm. you react based on what he does so it becomes very uplifting you know and then you look back on it and go wow i did i did i do that <laughs> you know <laughs> there's proof on youtube yeah yeah exactly there's one other thing i want to ask you about and then i want to get back to the um the monk project with frank kimbra okay but you know, you play with so many people you you've done hundreds of recording sessions you gig all the time you, I know you're a great reader. I've seen you read on gigs. I've seen you not read on gigs. But you also play a lot of complicated music. Carla Blay, you used her tune, Vols Sinistra, on your album. Mm -hmm. Very uncommon form. I think it even follows that, what, 39-bar form. And then Micah, Micah Thomas's tune on your record, too, Never Ends, mm -hmm. right? That you sent me the chart to, or the, the sheet music to. Thanks again for that. No problem. But that's a tough tune, too. I mean, it's, it's easy to hear. Mm -hmm. Right. But then you look at it on the paper and you're seeing four, four, six, four, five, four. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you approach learning new music that is complicated? If you have just a short time to learn it before a tour or a gig or a recording session, like are you reading? Are you trying to listen and internalize? What's your approach? Because you always seem to show up prepared. Well, I mean, I can read. I can read music. I'm not, you know 
a sight reader or anything like that. There's some people that really do that well. But I can read. And if there's something that, uh, well, it, it, it depends on situation by situation. A, a lot of record dates that I do are very low budget record record <laughs> and so a lot of the times there's 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 no rehearsal you just go in and the leader of the date has these tunes that they want to play and you basically run them down try to get them so that you know there's no train wrecks or anything and you know know how it ends know how it begins know the form know the feel, you know, all that sort of thing. And uh, I think by having done so many of those kind of records, we used to call them cash and carry, um, cash and carry <laughs> record days. I think by having done so many of those, I've kind of gotten used to being able to uh, get things together relatively quickly. But, you know, I, I mean, again, it, it, it's a, it's certainly a case-by-case situation. I guess if there was something that, I had an opportunity to have a rehearsal and if something was a little tricky or something was a little more difficult that I, you know, need to sharpen up on, then, then hopefully I could take it home and work on it so that I, I could play it and have it seem as natural as I, as I could make it seem and as musical as I could make it seem. And so that when I do come into the recording or the gig, the live performance, I'm prepared. So it's just like anything else. I mean, sometimes you have to, you know, you have to, uh, sometimes you have to do some homework. Here in New York, it's very difficult to keep a working band together. And so a lot of the things that I do, uh, I'm playing with a different group, you know, every time I play practically. I mean, some, some, Mm -hmm. some things are reoccurring, of course, but. But I do play a lot of gigs where this is the first time that I've played with this particular group of people. Maybe I've played with each of them individually in some other situation. So you get thrown into these situations in New York on a regular basis because um, economically, it's just not possible for anybody to have a band too much anymore. I mean, I that that's always been my dream is to be in a band and when i have been in bands that's when i've been the most comfortable because you know you're playing night after night or for for over over a period of time you're playing quite a bit and this that and the other and so you start to develop something that helps the music get off the page and become this organic thing all of its own that's something that i've always wanted to do and i've been lucky enough to have participated in some bands over the years that were sort of like that but it it, it, and right now i'm in a i'm in a i'm in a band well i'm kind of in a band i guess i'm in this band (laughs) with it with uh, charles mcpherson oh yeah yeah one of those people that i was talking about he's one of those uh, you know the guys that uh, help basically shape and invent this music that we were trying to play and you know there's a couple of other things that are that i'm kind of involved in that are reoccurring um but but the the day-to-day activity in new york is primarily for me as a side person to come in and be the drummer and play the music that the leader wants to play and hopefully Mm -hmm. play it well enough so that you know you don't ruin it (laughs) 
for that person. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're so if you're not getting the chance to rehearse a lot and prep for gigs, are you you know you mentioned a little bit about keeping your ride cymbal together and making sure you practice. Do you practice at home fairly regularly and what kind of stuff do you work on when you sit down to practice? Is it maintenance stuff or are there any drum books you're trying to get through or solos you're trying to learn by ear from? No, 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 no. I don't, I don't do that. I never really learned. I never really learned any solos by anybody. I never transcribed a solo. Oh, uh, interesting. In my life. I never, but I did steal a lot of things from having listened to people you know, sure. you know okay. so not i'm not to say that I, you know it's not to say that transcribing is a is a good thing or a bad thing it's it it was it's what you make of it you know and so i never did that and i and i and so i i guess what happens when you don't do that you might you know you're stealing you're stealing something that you heard somebody else play and you try to play it like that person now it might not come out the way that they played it because of your insufficient abilities or you're just hearing it differently or you're not playing it with the correct sticking so it doesn't sound exactly like that. And you're not playing it in context either, so it kinda has to yeah, sound. Yeah, well sometimes different. yeah, sometimes you you know, sometimes app you know, sometimes application is key. And so it, if you're not in that situation, it might not be applicable. So yeah, so yeah, so I I never I never learned solos or transcribed anybody's solo or anything like that. But I did steal a lot of things from records and from seeing people play. Um, um, some people are easier to assimilate, and some people are more dense, and it's very hard to figure out what it is that they're doing because it's a little bit more off the page is a little bit more organic and kind of personal. Mm -hmm. um, and so in terms of uh, myself practicing uh, my practice, I, I do try to practice every day. Sometimes it doesn't work out, <laughs> but I try to. <laughs> um, and so my practicing, sometimes it's just like, um, it's just uh, like you said, that was a good word, maintenance. What I try to do is, uh, I just want to stay loose. So I want to keep my hands hot, warm. I want to keep my hands warm. So I'll, you know, I have some, like a little, I have some little rudimental rituals that I do for myself um, mm. that I made up and I give them to my students to do. They help me. So I figure what they... Oh, they, cool. I'd love to see those sometime. Well, I don't even have them written down. They're just things that I do. You know, I don't have them... I don't, I'm not one of those kind of analytical kind of like... I'm I'm more kind of like oral, you know. I, I you know, I, I, I hear it and I and then I do it. I don't... I'm not a... I don't really write stuff down. So I have little things that I do. And basically, they're just... Uh, they're rudiments and they're doubles and singles and you know and uh which was which, which is what rudiments are basically patterns consisting of doubles and singles and and then you could dress them up by putting a flam on them or or a rough or whatever but um yeah so i do the i do that i can do that kind of mindlessly while while i'm watching tv or having a conversation with somebody or anything like that because i've done it so much and so you do a lot of work on the pad at home then? Oh, yeah, Sounds yeah, like practice yeah. Pad. There's, yeah. My, there's my pad, there's my stick. Oh, nice. And, you know, so. What practice pad do you like right now? Oh, I don't even know what kind this is. 
It says it says Colado on it. Okay. I think this I think this is from um, well when I was in school in my dorm room you you couldn't play the drums in the in the mm-hmm. dorm dormitory so I I had a practice pad drum set. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. I don't know, yeah, if, I don't yeah. know if, he, if they still make them. I still have. I think the frame of it is in my closet in here. This is one of the practice pads. From the practice pad drum, you know, it had a snare drum, it had a tom tom, yeah, yeah. It might even had two tom tom, the floor tom, you know, just the same pad and a bass drum. You could put your pedal on the, you could put your foot pedal on the on the, you know, it was on a like a metal frame and it had a little cymbal stand connected to it and everything like that. So this that's what this is from. And then I have some other pads upstairs, in some other rooms. Um, I don't I don't know what the name. They're old, man. They're all this. These are old. These are real. This is from like the seventies. This is old, man, and the other ones are old too. So I don't even have any new. I don't have any new ones, you know. And then I have some. Just I just have some. I guess it would be this. Just the rubber. I have. Oh, okay. I have some rubber. There's just rubber, and you can just take the rubber pad and you just put it on a table, or you put it. When you're, oh, sure, sure. And you can throw it in your suitcase so that when you're on the road, you don't have this big thing. You just have a, a, a slab of rubber, you know, like a circle of. Yeah, yeah. And I also have oh, I, the funny thing that I have. Um, um, I used to get these uh, this company to clean my gutters on my house, and one time they left these these pad. I don't have one down here, but I guess they use them to. I would imagine they use them as like knee pads because they're on their knees cleaning oh, out yeah. the gutters up on the roof, yada yada. And so they left two of them in my yard. And so I was walking around my yard and I was like, what is this? And it was just like a little rubber, like a little kind of a rubber, just just about the same size as this, right? Same size wow, as like this. Like 10-inch circle yeah. or something. And and it's lighter than a it's light, it's not all the way rubber. It's, it's a little bit lighter than rubber. Mm. And uh it's great. It's great. And it says, you know, I'm not gonna say the name because if they hear this, like, ah, oh, you <laughs> but it, is, it just says the company gutter service, you know. And that's what it and I and I and I I I put those in, you know I have I have one of those in one of my suitcases and I have another one in another suitcase and so I always have a, a pad and you can just put it on anything you know like if you're in a hotel room you could put it on the yeah. desk or on the night table or if there's a little table and it doesn't bother people and <laughs> so I uh, so I have I have those things so I press so sometimes I practice on. If I'm just, you know, if I if I'm not playing the drums, um, but I always have a, I have a set of drums, you know, set up. Here's my 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 mm-hmm. there's my drum set. Oh and, yeah, yellow grudge. Yeah. and so you know, and so Beautiful. this is this is I have a drum set set up all the time, so I can come down here anytime I feel like it and and uh, and play the drums. And you know, sometimes it's for ten minutes, sometimes it's a half an hour, sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's you know. You know they're they're compelling <laughs> because I see them and I know they they're gonna get me. You know they're gonna they're gonna let me know if I don't pay attention. <laughs> 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 so so I you know they, it's it's great to have them there because they're compelling and I love them and you know and I want to play them and I and I, so I you know so I play them for a little bit and then I can go and do something else or whatever you know go, you know yeah. That's great. Uh, so yeah, so that's what that's how I do it. And some sometimes I play along the records. I make you know I guess they used to call them um, back in the day they used to call them mixtapes. 
So I, I have I have mixed CDs. That's just like stuff that uh, that I want to play along to. Sometimes they're focused. Sometimes it's like, okay, this is this is all stuff that's up tempo. This mm. is all stuff that's like brushes. This is all odd forms. Um, this is all even eighths type things. This is, and some mm-hmm. of them are just a, a, a mixture of of different things. That, you know, sometimes it's a mixture of different drummers that I like. And so, you know, from one track, it's this person and another track is this person. Another track is this person. So you just try to get into that zone because this person's playing with McCoy and this person's playing with Cedar and this person's playing with Chick and this person's playing with Joe Henderson. And and then and then so it kind of gets you in the zone of of all these different musical situations that that you may have to deal with, you know, you know what I mean? And you're, and you're, mm-hmm. and you're working line. And, uh, and so I try to get my students to do this. Of course, they don't have CD players. They don't know nothing, nothing about that. But I say, look, you got this phone, make playlists and, you know, put your earphones in and play along to these things that you want to be able to do. If you can't play up tempo if you can't play slow tempos if you can't play ballads if you can't play brushes in three if you can't play this that you know blah 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 it's a myriad of things that that need to be addressed and so most of the time they don't do it but um, i tell them to do it anyway but the ones that do it's a good way to get out of the books yeah well you know yeah, see, and that's an, that's for me. I never worked out of any book, not a drum set. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know any book. I mean, I, you know, I have, um, I have some books because people send me stuff, and I have, I have the Chapin book, and I have John Riley's book, and I have sure some other books, and like Alan Dawson. But I, I never, I could never really get myself together to. Maybe if somebody sat me down and said, okay, here's what we're going to do, you know, page one, <laughs> work on page one, okay, we we'll <laughs> yeah. come back, you know, but I never took lessons like that. So I, I never experienced that sort of formality in learning how mm-hmm. to play the drums. So, you know, I, I mean, you know, not to say that that's a bad thing. So when I do teach, and I teach quite a bit, I can't come at it from any other place, but from the place that I am honest about, you know, I, I would be a charlatan if I was working with a student out of the Jim Chapin book, because I never did that. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that, what all of that is, you know? I mean, I know what it is, but I probably got to a lot of that in a more organic way, you know, which is, you know, could be good or could be bad. <laughs> um, I just, I guess I kind of want to switch gears right now and talk about that monk project. Mm-hmm. You know, I love your work with piano trios. I already mentioned David Hazeltine mm-hmm. and um, uh, Steve Kuhn mm-hmm. and Frank Kimbra. So you, you all embarked on a really a daunting project to say the least, mm-hmm. or record every one of monk's tunes. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about your association with Frank and how that group came together, and did you all play a lot before going into the studio to do all that recording? Did you rehearse a bunch? What was that association like leading up to getting into the studio to do that? And then talk a little bit about that time in the studio, because it's my understanding you guys did all that in just a couple of days. 
Well, we did it in, I think it was, it might have been like three different two-day sessions. Okay, okay. Something like that. Still impressive. I mean, I think we, I think we did like maybe 10 tunes a day. So if you if so if there's seventy okay. tunes, you're, we're talking about maybe maybe six days, you know, but broken up, like you know, go in and do Monday and Tuesday, and then come back and do Friday and Saturday, come back and do mm-hmm. Monday and Tuesday, and then you're done. Okay, yeah. yeah, that's that's what that was, and so um, that all happened because Frank was approached by a club that's no longer in existence called the Jazz Standard. Well, the, oh yeah, the, below the barbecue place. There. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was part yeah, of yeah. part of a place called Blue Smoke, and it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it was. It was. I think it was the centennial monk centennial birth. You know, birth year, and so they were doing a series of nights where it was different artists presenting monks music in 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 whatever way, shape, configuration that they wanted to, and Frank was was asked to do a night. And so he put the put a band together, and it was a band that's on the the CD. And so um, what happened was we, you know, we didn't rehearse. He just put the band together and say, okay, we're going to play. I don't know, ten tunes, you know, whatever tunes they were. I don't, I don't know which ones they were, but right now I can't remember. But whatever they were, you know, okay, we're going to do these tunes. Okay, everybody cool with that? Yep. Okay. So. If it's something that you didn't know, you would, you know, in your own, on your own time, you would learn it. You know, in my, mm-hmm. in my case, that's what I did. I guess in the, the other guy's case, that's what they did. So, so that, cause you know, because again, no rehearsal. So we show up, you know, maybe do a sound check. Let's just run over, you know, the head to buy a, or whatever tune I'm off the top of my head. I'm just thinking of a tune or what you need or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And so, okay, cool. All right, so we do the gig, and at that gig was a a person who had had uh, fond memories of when he was uh, in his twenties in New York, going to the Five Spot, hearing Monk like on a nightly basis when Monk was there for an extended period of time with you know mm-hmm. with whoever Coltrane or Johnny Griffin or whoever, and so he was very impressed with the band's performance of these monk tunes and it took him back to that time period and so he approached frank about he said you should you should record this band and actually what you should do is record all of monk's music this complete body of work and frank was like well yeah right you know that alone is (laughs) is like an undertaking that you know nobody thinks about doing and plus mm-hmm. who's gonna fund it you know right because you know like you know it's a, a huge body of work you know turned out to be 71 tunes or whatever it was and so the guy said well i'll do it i'll fund it i'll get somebody else to help me and some people to back it and i, w- I want you to do it and i want you to do it with this band so mm-hmm. frank was like really because that's you know you know, whatever the cost of that would be. And plus, you know, what are we going to do with it? Who's going to put it out, you know? Mm-hmm. And this guy was just like, no, let's just do it. We'll cross that bridge when we get to it. So it was decided that we were going to do it. And so again, no rehearsal, <laughs> just like, okay, 
the first two days we're going to play these 20 tunes. But we knew that we were going to play all of them. So we had plenty of time to individually become familiar. Yeah, do your homework. Yeah, become yeah. familiar with the tunes and all that, all that stuff. For me, it wasn't so such a big deal because basically Monk's tunes are not fast. And they're always swinging. And you just have to know the phrasing. You have to know how to play the, you know, play the play in between the in between the phrasing, so that you can set up the phrases. And Monk's music is very, very, very wonderful from a drummer's point of view because there's so much rhythmic thing, so many rhythmic things in there to get up under and to play within and to leave space and to put in your own personal ways of complementing those figures and phrases mm-hmm. and uh they they naturally swing um they have great chord changes and uh so you know but you know like scott and frank you know had to deal and rufus too had to deal with you know well especially scott having to deal with the melodies and frank as well mm-hmm. the changes and all that blowing over those changes and all that kind of stuff because monk's music is you know it's like the university of harmony in a lot of ways and that's why Coltrane and Sonny Rollins basically went to the University of Thelonious Monk to get their harmony together. So anyway, so that's how it happened. Um, we went in, and like I said, we did, uh, I think we did like, you know, on average, 10, 10 songs a day, you know, in an eight-hour or six-hour recording session. Yeah, what an achievement. It's so cool to listen to, to hear the same group get through all of those tunes <laughs> it's re- you know it's a rare experience right to hear one group yeah in a short span of time record all that material it's just wonderful i i go back to that so often and your approach on all of the tunes is so creative yeah and it, it's just wonderful it's one of my it's one of my all-time favorite things. oh man well thank you i'm glad because you know i i you know not too many people even know about it when it came out i think it got a little bit of you know sunlight on it because it was something that was a little bit unusual um but at the same time you know this is at the time when cds were not as as they are like now like like now that you know people don't buy cds so to put out a to put out a, a six cd box set of all of monk's music played by people that basically didn't really have anything to do with Monk. I mean, if it was Ben Riley and Charlie, you know, like Sphere did that 30, yeah, 40 sure, years sure. ago. But Rouse and Ben were part of Monk's band. So there was some significance to, to that happening. Mm-hmm. And and at that time, people bought records. That Those records came out as LPs at first. And then when CDs came out, they were CDs. But at this time, when this record came out, I think three or four years ago, you know, the CD sales were certainly not happening. So anyway, so, um, yeah, so we did it. And then it was like, okay, what now? You know, is this thing just going to be a labor of love? And for this person that funded it to have to listen to in his own, at his own, you know, leisure and maybe give us tapes of it or whatever, burn CDs of it. But it ended up being picked up by a, by a, ra- a label. And so it, it ended up, you know, getting out there, you know. I'd encourage everybody to go check it out. It's on Bandcamp, so please buy it if you can. Yeah. Otherwise, it's on Spotify, too. So yeah. 
it's easy to find. So mm -hmm. yeah, thanks so much mm -hmm. for talking about that. I just, I can't tell you, I love that so much. Oh. And it was my way, it was really my way into you becoming like my guy. So <laughs> it's extra meaningful to me. So uh, that's great. Very cool. That's great. Well, you know, it's, I'm glad that we did it because, you know, of course, Frank's not here anymore. Right, right. It was one of the last things that he did. And, uh, you know, the record did get really positive reviews and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, like we didn't really frank's idea was not to you know change it from what it what it initially was he didn't want to he didn't want to mess with it too much he wanted to play the tunes the way they were written mm -hmm. uh, you know not trying to make them into five four or seven four yeah, or yeah, yeah. turn them into a samba or whatever like that which is fine too i mean that's cool too he just wanted to play them he didn't want to mess with Monk's music. And so we just mm -hmm. played them as true to form as possible. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I'm glad that uh, that it happened and Frank got a chance to see the response from people. And uh, and we ended up, I think we ended up, we ended up doing maybe just a couple of gigs uh, after the thing came out. We might have done, I know we went to, we went to um, the Azores and Portugal with that band and oh, cool. did that music after that uh you know of course the pandemic happened so we weren't able to really capitalize on perhaps making that a band that could actually tour behind the project which would have been really nice mm -hmm. to to have done but uh, yeah. but unfortunately circumstances presented themselves with the pandemic and then of course frank passing away so yeah, well, thanks. Thankfully, it's documented. It's documented. Yeah, what a wonderful there thing. There you go. There you go. So I, I do want to respect your time, and I don't want uh, to go on for too long here. So, you know, I've kind of came into this thinking I was going to ask you a lot about practicing, and we we're going to kind of get nerdy about <laughs> rudiments and stuff like that. But really, kind of what I took away from this is really about diving into the music. Mm -hmm. And you know, I I do know you love Glass Bead Games as an album. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, for anybody listening that doesn't know about that album, check it out. It's wonderful. Clifford Jordan, mm -hmm. Billy Higgins. But are there, can you name a couple of other albums that are maybe a little less known that you think people need to make sure that they're checking out and keeping alive? Oh, man. Yeah, that's, whew, that's, uh, I mean, there's a lot. There's, there's a lot. A, you there's know, a, or, there's or anything <laughs> rare that you know, but there's this rare, there's this rare CD that I have here. I don't know if you know this one. It's a live Bobby oh, Hutcherson. Yes, yes, I have that. Um, with Chambers, and there is a fast version of Herzog on yeah, here. Yeah, that's right. Well, I used to I used to play it with Bobby real fast when when um, you know because I played with Bobby for for many years and we used to play it real fast. You know, he would do songs that were. I mean, that song is you know medium medium up with Chick and uh, Total Eclipse. That's right. Um, mm -hmm. But and then that version is great too. But uh, but that's you know they it's not played. <laughs> Yeah, it's not out of this yeah, world, yeah. but it's, it's but, quicker than on the but record. Bobby used to play it. Yeah, he 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 would play. He would jack stuff up that was, you know, like Little B's poem and some of those other some of those other tunes that were kind of pulled back on the original recordings. Live, he would he would he would pump them up a bit, you know, quite a bit. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, but um, 
I mean, there's a ton of Bobby's records if you want to talk about rare. Not rare, but I mean, you know, a lot of these people, you know, none of their records are, I mean, you know, we talk about Kind of Blue or Miles Smiles or those records are, you know, everybody knows those records, but, you know. Right. But, you know, most of, most jazz artists have a body of work that consists of several recordings that don't see the light of day maybe during their lifetime and they become after they pass away unfortunately they become kind of important uh like glass bead games for example uh i mean i'm sure clifford jordan was proud of that but that would see when that record came out it came out in the 70s and then that label kind of went under and so that record was very difficult to find if anybody was looking for it, if they knew about it, that it existed. Fortunately for me, I knew I had it when it was when it came out in the seventies. In but it it didn't become kind of a cult, sort of a cult classic until maybe the last fifteen years. And uh, actually, I I did a uh, a week of that music. Eric Reed put together a band. Uh, it was oh, a, it was cool. a whole lot of fun with. Um, that's where I met Desron Douglas on that gig. And Seamus Blake, I think, was the saxophone player. And we did all the music from Glass Bead Games. Oh, wow. Did you? So that was in the city? This was at Dizzy's. This was some years ago. This is probably like 15 years ago. So it, it, it was kind of a, a, an unknown um, gem amongst musicians in the know. But even a lot of musicians mm-hmm. did, didn't know about it that much because... Uh, Clifford wasn't like a Sonny Rollins or even a Joe Henderson. You know, he wasn't, you know, he never really achieved that kind of a notoriety, you know. Um, but a great, great, great saxophonist and a great musician. But, you know, everybody doesn't get that those kind of accolades that they deserve, of course. And um, and so, uh, yeah, that, that record is certainly... Uh, now it's you know it's, it's I think it's been it's been remastered and re-released because his wife his mm-hmm. his widow gave me the the CD the re- I had two separate CDs that I got in Europe many years ago and then it got remastered I think and then she gave mm-hmm. me the remastered version which sounds even better yeah so I you know I mean I can't think I, I can't think right off the top of my head of, of records that are uh, they're unknown. But do you have anything you're listening to lately that you're really? Oh wow! I mean, or new stuff you're I, checking out? I'd have to. I'd have to. I'd have to walk around here and look and see, <laughs> <laughs> see what I've what I what I what I've pulled out that I. You know, I find myself listening to the same stuff that I've that I've listened to my whole life because it keeps. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. You know. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 I'm a big fan of um, a group that. Hank Jones became the de facto leader of, but that Tony Williams basically formed a group called the Great Jazz Trio. Oh, yes, yes. And so it can be somewhat of a great study for a lot of reasons, uh, for the drummers that have passed through that group and for Hank Jones, who's made, you know, get, doesn't get much better than Hank Jones, right? And then the bassists that are, that have passed through that group. It's, it can be a study for bass players just to, you know, check the different bass players that have been a part of that group over the the, the time that that group existed. So um, it's called the Great Jazz Trio. 
it started off with, uh, I think the very first record was Tony Williams, Buster Williams, and Hank, and then Ron Carter and those two for several records, and then on and on and on with different people, Al Foster and Eddie Gomez, Jimmy Cobb and Eddie Gomez, Roy Haynes and George Mraz, Billy Hart and George Mraz, uh, Richard Davis and Elvin Jones, Jack DeJanet and John Patitucci. And so, you know, and each of these, each of these combinations did two, three, four mm-hmm. records, you know. Yeah, it's a lot of great material to check out. And they, and, and they, and they just dive into mainly standards because it, most of these recordings were, were Japanese recordings on Japanese labels. And they tend mm-hmm. to like standards. They want to hear Bye Bye Blackbird, sure, Stella sure. by Starlight, blah, 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 blah. But I mean, in the hands of Hank Jones, anything's golden, you know. Oh, yeah, and it's a great way to check out those players approaching material that we all know. Exactly. And, uh, you know, and uh, so uh, so that's there's there's something right there that. Uh, all right. I love that, it. That, yeah. That maybe maybe interesting to, to somebody. I don't know. It's interesting to me. I always wanted to be in that band, but I played with Hank a few times, but it wasn't Build the Great Jazz Trio. Well, Billy, thank you so much for your time. I I really can't thank you enough. This is a... Oh, man, it was my pleasure. Yeah, big thrill for me. And I I really appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your playing. And I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for your support, uh, for coming uh, to to some of my gigs and, and, uh, you know... Of course, uh, it's my pleasure. Writing me and and, uh, your enthusiasm for what I'm trying to do. And uh, please, if you're ever in New York again, if you want to come by and hang out, I'd love to have you come over. I got a lot of records. Uh, Thank uh, you, yeah. uh, And you have a nice stereo system, which I've heard about, (laughs) and we won't even touch on that. Yeah, well, that's my little little hobby, you know, which is kind of nuts, but... Anyway, yeah. It, yeah, it, it's better than sports cars and boats. Yeah, right? well, I mean, yeah, I guess so. You know, I think as long as you, you're not hurting anybody and not hurting yourself and 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 it's enjoyable to you during this lifetime, there's many things that can bring you down. So having a couple of things that bring you up is a good thing. So that's right. That's my little slice of happiness that I go to. You know, my happy place that, you know, how they say, you know, happy place. <laughs> yeah. That's my happy place. <laughs> Besides playing, playing the music, you know. So, and it's kind of, and it's kind of related because I can listen to my favorite music on a really good uh, playback system and that, mm-hmm. that makes it double the pleasure. <laughs> all right well well let's leave it there i know people can find you at Mm billydrummonddrums.com you got all your gigs there and all your info and i'll put links to everything in the show notes and uh we'll leave it at that thank you again so much i I really appreciate it my pleasure man all the best to you man and uh, let me know when this is uh, available to see hopefully i didn't put my foot in my mouth Anything, so. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I will let you know. Thank you again. Okay, man. Ciao, ciao. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, Billy. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe on your platform of choice and share it with a friend. You can find the podcast at practicingdrummer.com or on Facebook and Instagram as Practicing Drummer. Until next time, happy practicing.